Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Bilahari Kausakan, former ambassador at large and former permanent secretary of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Singapore, to discuss balance of power from a Southeast Asian perspective. Welcome back to the Asian Chessboard. I'm Mike Green. I'm joined by my colleague Jude Blanchett and one of the masters of the game, Bilahari Kausakan of Singapore. Welcome, Bilahari. We're, we're delighted we could get you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Hi, Jude. And thank you for inviting me. So anybody who works on the Indo-Pacific knows uh, Bilahari Kausakan. He served as the Secretary of Foreign Affairs in Singapore, in the UN as Ambassador, High Commissioner in Australia and Jakarta, and uh, Moscow and other key posts, a scholar diplomat with a degree from Columbia University and a quite active and insightful set of speeches, commentaries, analysis on not just Southeast Asia, but global affairs. We'll get to a lot of that. But first, let's turn to you, Bilahari. You you, you joined the Foreign uh, Service in the early 80s, but we always like to understand why. Why? Why did you get into the business of international affairs when you could have made tons of money in Singapore as it grew economically? Well, it was a combination of changing my mind and absent-mindedness. Many, many years ago, in the late 1970s, I was given a scholarship by the United States. It was a Fulbright scholarship to do graduate studies at Columbia University. And the idea then was that I would come back and teach in the university after getting a PhD. Sort of three quarters of the way through while writing my dissertation, I decided that I didn't really want to teach because, you know, there's this pesky thing called students, uh, which uh, I didn't deal with very well. So, but, you know, although the scholarship was paid for by the U.S. government, both of you actually, thank you very much, (laughs) taxpayers. um, You know, the Singapore government in its characteristic way said that, that I had to nonetheless serve the Singapore government in some capacity for eight years. So I came back and not knowing anything about the Singapore government, the only bit I knew a bit about was the foreign ministry. So I said I'll serve in the foreign ministry, intending to leave after my eight years was up. But I forgot to leave and the rest is history. So I served in the end 37 years in different capacities. And that's how I got into this business. And Singapore and the U.S. and the region are better for it. For people who don't know Singapore's history, how would you characterize, capture the essence of Lee Kuan Yew's strategy of Singapore's strategy in international affairs how to survive as a city-state in the modern world? Well, in, in essence, we are non-aligned in the sense that we will always probably would better say than non-aligned is a multi-aligned. We'll be friends with anybody who wants to be friends with us. And we think uh, that is our interest. But we also, I've been very clear from the very beginning and never shy about saying so, the necessary condition for being multi-aligned is to have a balance of power in our larger region, East Asia. And the essential element in, in that balance of power is the United States. No U.S., no balance. And so we have always tried to do what we can to encourage the U.S. to stay engaged in the region, including since the late 1980s, allowing the U.S. military forces to use our facilities after a combination of natural disaster and Filipino domestic politics 
forced you out of Subic Bay and Clark Airfield in the Philippines. So it's a, a strange combination of being extremely friendly with the United States, but non-aligned or multi-aligned. We are not a U.S. ally, by the way, uh, right. and, and do not want to be a U.S. ally and don't believe you will defend us. We just require to maintain the balance of power and sell us stuff so we can defend ourselves. So the critics of Singapore strategy would say it's not really a balance of power strategy, it's a bandwagoning strategy. And as long as the U.S. was the most powerful country in the Indo-Pacific, Singapore to some extent bandwagoned. But now that China's rising, Singapore's strategic sort of belt and chain worldview will lead it to align with China. Is that criticism off? No, it's a complete misunderstanding of our worldview. Precisely because China is rising, the, the role of the U.S. in maintaining balance becomes all the more important because the fundamental purpose of our foreign policy, like every other foreign policy, is to maintain sovereignty, autonomy as far as possible. And that is not possible if there is no balance. And without the U.S., there cannot be a balance precisely because China is rising. And another key part of Singapore's strategy of survival and uh, prosperity has been the ASEAN experiment and creating ASEAN centrality and arbitrating or at least managing uh, great power relations through a regional architecture that is centered in ASEAN, the ASEAN Regional Forum, the East Asia Summit, and so forth. It seems to me that's been absolutely essential to Singapore and Singapore's neighbors' grant strategy. And yet the ASEAN experiment is viewed from the outside a bit broken. The 2016 ruling of the International Tribunal on the Philippines case uh, and other examples suggested to a lot of big powers, maybe this uh, ASEAN centrality isn't going to work because Beijing has figured out it can use the requirement for consensus in ASEAN to basically block any agency and influence the outcomes. But you've said ASEAN is not a thoroughbred, it's a cow, I think, or whatever metaphor you use to say, don't expect too much, it's still the best you know, as Winston Churchill might say, it's the worst form of multilateralism in Southeast Asia, except all the other forms. So how does ASEAN look to you now as a strategic bulwark in the balance of power strategy you describe? Well, I think um, you have to understand that the fundamental purpose of ASEAN is to manage relations among its members. And those relations are always troubled and will always be troubled for a variety of reasons that we need not go into right now. In other words, this is not a happy band of brothers singing in perfect harmony. If we were a happy band of brothers and could sing in perfect harmony, there would be no need for ASEAN, right? But, you know, in that very fundamental purpose, it has been pretty successful. Uh, because if you consider the state of Southeast Asia uh, before ASEAN, uh, before 1967, and now, we are not without problems now, but we are certainly much better off than we were or when, when anybody had any um, good reason to expect we would be in this fairly happy state we are today. And I think ASEAN is not the only reason for it, but it's certainly a large reason for this happy state. Now, that said, almost everything else we do is a means to this and managing relations among our members. Right? Sometimes we do that better than other times, and this is not a very good time for a variety of reasons. The fundamental reason being, this is an interstate organization. It can do no more than its members allow it to do. It's not an EU. We don't have any supranational delusions like the EU has. Uh, it's an interstate organization. 
And the fact is, the hard fact is, a number of important ASEAN members have rather complicated domestic politics at the moment and for the foreseeable future. And so we will not be able to do very much. Now, this idea of ASEAN centrality is uh, something that I'm getting a little stick about, you know, because what does centrality mean? Centrality means being useful, being useful to your members, being useful to your partners. We are still useful for our members because we need some means of uh, managing relations, but we are not so useful to our partners. We have some use because it stabilizes the region, and I don't think anybody, none of our partners, not the US, not China, not Japan, not India, wants an unstable Southeast Asia, but that's a rather minimal use. You know, I have told my former colleagues in our foreign service and other ASEAN foreign services that we have to think of what we can do under the new strategic circumstances. We don't have to do every damn thing that the US wants us to do any more than we have to do every damn thing that the Chinese wants us to do or Japanese or India or whoever, right? But we have to define parameters of what we are prepared to do and not prepared to do, and we haven't done that for some time. So I think we have fallen short there, but still it is better to have something that minimally stabilizes the region than nothing. This is not a perfect world, and we've got to live in it, whether it's perfect or not. We'll circle back to Southeast Asia in a minute. I wonder if I can introduce China in a more central way in this discussion. You just mentioned a few minutes ago the fact of a rising China necessitates the United States' involvement in the region to help maintain that balance of power. The idea that China is still rising has become something of a controversial assessment here in the United States. You know, many will point to looking at the state of its domestic economy, of course, looking at this very chaotic and sudden pivot from COVID. But more importantly, I, I uh, listeners won't be able to know, but behind you, you have Susan Shirk's book, Overreach, which also makes the case that China's foreign policy has taken a, a pretty decisive shift for the worse. So just as a level set question, I wanted to get your assessment of where you see China's trajectory today. Are, are we peaking? Are we still ascending? Are we plateauing? And what do you think the duration of any of this is? Does China reset and course correct, or do you think we're on a more inexorable slide for the country? Well, that's a very good question. I have, I think you know, Jude, I have been saying in my speeches and sometimes writing it that uh, for some time, for some years now, that uh, Xi Jinping is probably the worst emperor since Mao Zedong. He's not been very competent at governance, whether internal governance or foreign policy governance. I am hard-pressed to think of any initiative he took in the last 10 years that I can describe as an unqualified success. And his foreign policy has been, by and large, a failure. And he himself has, um, I think it was last year, tacitly admitted so when he uh, enjoined some group of cadres to make China more lovable, more respectable. You know, you know the, the quote, right? doesn't seem to me that that is a a description of a very stellar foreign policy. So I think, you know, we have always been for some years worried, all of us, worried and thinking of ways to deal with a rising China and a very assertive China. I think we should at least devote some time now to think of a China that may be increasingly frustrated internally and externally, and that may not make it any less assertive, you know, it may make it even more assertive and probably more difficult to deal with. Now, I am not ready to say definitively that this is already peak China, 
is all downhill, right? I think that would be premature, but I think it's not premature to start thinking of that scenario. Certainly, if we look out, China now has a um, population of 1.4 billion, right? But by the year 2100, it'll be half if the current projections are right. And that's a remarkable drop. I don't think historically we've ever seen such a, a huge decline in population of such a big country. Now, what are the implications of that? Well, certainly by that time, you're going to find a much diminished China. But, you know, will its ambitions be diminished? Its capabilities will be diminished, but not necessarily its ambitions. And in between, for the next 10 years or so, we'll have this not very competent emperor in charge. Now, he he really um, turned on a dime on zero COVID, and not because he decided it was the right thing to do. It was basically forced upon him. It was forced upon him because, you know, workers and students were getting upset about the whole thing as well as ordinary people. And that, in Chinese history, is a very potent combination. And this is not a policy he can foist off and blame local officials. He has taken full credit for it, and therefore he will have to take full responsibility of it, and he beat extremely hasty retreat. But will he beat a hasty retreat on China's other ambitions? I'm not so sure. Because I think they are hardwired into the narrative of humiliation, rejuvenation, and achieving the China dream that Mr. Xi has used much more insistently than any of his uh, predecessors to legitimate the rule of the party and his rule of the party, right? And, you know, a lot of the assertive behavior, the very entitled behavior, that narrative is a revanchist narrative. You know, it was mine, it was stolen from me, so I want it back. And that's also a very entitled narrative, and that makes it hard to compromise. After all, if it was already mine and somebody stole it from me, what's wrong with me trying to get it back by any means, right? So I think that's the root cause of a lot of Chinese behavior. And I think the party and Mr. Xi both uses this narrative and is a bit of prisoner of it. Because if you say this is mine anyway, then, you know, why should I not use any means to try to get it back, to demand it back, to demand the place that I thought was I've been robbed of? And if I don't do it, you know, I will be criticized. Shouldn't I be criticized? Because I've already told my people, this is ours, you know, rightfully. So I think they're a bit stuck. So even whether China is rising or whether China is peaked and, you know, is going to get increasingly frustrated, I think we're going to deal with a, a very assertive China for the foreseeable future. One of the curious elements, to me at least, of, of this a more erratic, more truculent turn in Chinese foreign policy as as of late, let's say over the last five years, has been China still hasn't paid as much of a cost as I would have thought they might pay. So for example, you know, even in the post-20th Party Congress period, we saw Chancellor Schultz beating a bush to visit Xi Jinping. This week we've got Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong is on her way to Beijing. Xi Jinping just wrapped up a relatively successful trip to Saudi Arabia with the Saudis now indicating that they're going to show an increasing tolerance for using renminbi to settle energy transactions. We can overplay how much that means, but nonetheless, we had the, from Xi's perspective, relatively successful meeting with President Biden in Bali. So if you were just looking at the period after the 20th Party Congress, looking at foreign policy, Xi Jinping seems to have still be steering a relatively steady ship. And we're still seeing 
leaders in the Indo-Pacific, Europe, Southeast Asia, the global South, still looking to China as an economic partner, even if there's some chafing at the wolf warriorism. Is China just not fully paying a cost for this yet? Is its market so great that it can withstand some of the erratic elements that you just talked about? Or is there a better way we should be thinking about this? Look, I'm hard-pressed to think of any country that doesn't have some concerns about Chinese behavior. At the same time, I'm hard-pressed to think of any country, including friends and allies, that doesn't have some concerns about American behavior. (laughs) Uh, But you are the two biggest countries in the world, and we have to deal with you whether we like it or not. So, you, um, you know, Americans are not as universally loved as you may think, but you are indispensable. And China is a huge part of the world economy, and in that sense, it's indispensable. You have to deal with it. You don't have to like how it behaves, but you have to deal with it. Similarly, you don't have to like how the U.S. behaves, but you have to deal with the U.S. So, you know, you are both in a very parallel situation. Uh, It is something that perhaps is kind of lost on Americans because you have this touching belief that everyone loves you, and certainly people (laughs) love you a bit more then they love China. You know, I don't see a lot of people queuing outside Chinese embassies uh, hoping to immigrate to China, but I still do that, see that outside American embassies, although you're a bit less welcoming to immigrants these days. Huh? So I think you have some advantages, but you shouldn't think that we don't have concerns about you just as we <laughs> concerns about China. But we have to deal with both. In fact, I think there is a better appreciation in Southeast Asia that dealing with one is a necessary condition of dealing with the other. You have to deal with both simultaneously, right? You know, I think you know, both of you know, uh, that Singapore has never been shy about saying the U.S. is a vital element of a strategic balance in our region, right? And our other ASEAN partners have always thought this to be a somewhat eccentric Singaporean attitude. I think there is a better appreciation that this is in, our, in Southeast Asia, that this is a strategic reality and not just an eccentric Singaporean attitude. And that's due to the rise of China. In 1990, we signed an MOU with the United States to allow uh, the U.S. forces the use of some of our facilities, as I mentioned earlier. And how did our neighbors, particularly Indonesia and Malaysia, react? They reacted hysterically as if we had conspired with the devil, that's you, by the way, uh, to kidnap their firstborn and sell them into slavery. Now, that's in 1990. You fast forward to 2019 when we renewed that MOU. Right? Uh, what happened? Nothing happened. Not a whimper of protest from anybody. And in between, in 2005, we signed a strategic partnership framework agreement that brought the level of our defense cooperation with the U.S. just below that of U.S. allies in Northeast Asia, and certainly far higher than U.S. allies in Southeast Asia, Thailand and the Philippines. Again, what happened? Nothing happened. For a variety of reasons, many Southeast Asian countries are unable to do as much with the U.S. as we are prepared to do, but they are doing what they can, including Indonesia and Malaysia. They're doing much more than they did in the past. And I think there's a better appreciation that what we do with the U.S. is is a kind of regional public good because it keeps the U.S. anchored in the region and maintains the balance without which we cannot have a close relationship with China. As I said, a close relationship with China and a close relationship with the U.S. are not alternatives. There's a better appreciation. One is a necessary condition of the other. 
I mean, if there was no China, you guys are going to take us all for granted and it will become quite intolerable. <laughs> so I sometimes wonder whether there's a requirement in Singapore to have professional worrying about the U.S. because it's a, it's a long-standing tradition to, to worry about the U.S. staying power. I, I'm guessing it uh, is something we inherited when the British lost Singapore to the Japanese in 1942. And over the decades, there have been various things that have worried Singaporean foreign policy experts about the U.S., whether it was the Vietnam War or, you know, the 1990s unipolarity. We've given Singapore a lot to worry about. But looking at the Biden administration and the U.S. today, what worries you the most in this geopolitical game? Look, um, the worry about the U.S., the constant worry, although the specific worries have varied over time, is actually a reflection of how important the U.S. is to us. I mean, we don't worry about Canada, you know. We don't worry even too much about the EU, <laughs> but we worry about the US because you are important, <laughs> you know, like it or not, right? Now, the Biden administration has resorted some sense of normalcy to US policy in this region after the turmoil of the Trump years, right? And that's all to the good. But the current worry we have is actually a variant of uh, a constant worry is US domestic politics. You know, Biden is fine as far as it goes. Another Biden administration will be fine as far as it goes. But will there be another Biden administration? U.S. domestic politics has always been polarized, but right now much more polarized than I have actually ever seen it before. And I think you have actually seen it before, right? Or any American that I know. Huh? Yeah. I mean, sensible Americans like both of you are well nigh uh, almost, uh, you know, endangered species, you know? whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. And that worries us, you know. I, you know, throughout my career, I have, and you have alluded to this, you know, over and over again been asked by Americans, by the way, do you consider America reliable? And my answer is, of course, you're not reliable because, you know, look at your domestic politics. Every four years, every damn thing is upended and people like me have to go and trash Washington and explain the same things over and over again to a different group of Americans. So how can that be reliable? However, you are indispensable. So the question of reliability is moot. There's only one America and you have to deal with it, uh, despite all your eccentricities. So, you know, we, we worry because you are important. If you're not important, we wouldn't worry. I don't know anybody in ASEAN who worries about Canada. Sorry, my Canadian friends, but you know, that's the fact, right? There goes our Canadian audience. <laughs> okay. No, you get more. Because they want to prove me wrong. <laughs> there you go. But do you think Singaporean experts like yourself must see that while there's greater polarization than ever in U.S. politics, you had all the ugly insurgency, you know, optics of January 6th and election denial and all the rest of that. But when you look at American foreign policy, in my career, there's never been more bipartisan consensus from one administration to the next about the importance of Asia about the importance of allies and partners, about the need to compete with China. It's not like, like there's this surge of isolationism, with the exception of Mr. Trump himself. So, you know, how do people parse that? Because there is a much broader consensus than there used to be. You know, when you started in this business, the German Marshall Fund and the Atlantic Council thought Asia was on the other side of the moon, but both those think tanks now have large Asia programs. The pivot is psychologically economically real in America. So does that give you some hope? Uh, because yes, American democracy is designed to be 
a little bit clumsy and ugly in a way. But the thrust of strategic thinking in the U.S. has actually probably been pretty good for the region in many ways. Well, you are right and you are wrong, all right, simultaneously, all right? I think those of us who know something about America, I wouldn't claim to be an expert on America because you are a very difficult country to understand, actually. And that's my point. You are more difficult to understand than most Americans fondly believe, right? And that is something I have told Americans over and over again in my career with absolutely no success, right? That you have to understand that your your weird and wonderful political system is hard to understand. And that can be a liability because people overreact. If you know something of America, you know how to situate things that happen on a daily basis in Washington, D.C. And you're right, there has been a fundamental consensus, I think not just in the last few years, uh, for quite a long time, maybe at least since before Bush 41, you know, since that Asia is important. And certainly since the end of the Cold War, uh, there has been a fundamental consensus, which is stronger now. No? There are some things wrong with that consensus because it's too much focus on China. Uh, and those of us who live in this part of the world would like to think that you think of us not merely because you fear that we will veer to China, but because we are, you know, you know, nice people in our own right, you know, quite charming sometimes, right? But there are two saving graces about uh, America that those of us who know you better uh, do. First of all, there has been a fundamental consistency in American approach to Asia. The big strategic shift in Asia took place in 1969-1975, when you shift from being a direct intervener in, say, Vietnam to being the offshore balancer. And you have been remarkably consistent for more than half a century in that role. That is not given sufficient appreciation, I think, either in America or in, in this part of the world. Secondly, I think, and one of the first things I learned about America almost by accident when I was a graduate student there is that the most important things in America do not necessarily take place in Washington, D.C. And that is the fundamental source of your resilience. And that is hard for people in Asia to understand and in Southeast Asia because we all come from political traditions where good government is equated with strong central government. And that is why I think China and some other of your adversaries uh, tend to underestimate America. You know, you quoted Churchill some time ago, just uh, a moment ago, and I think what he said is fundamentally correct. You will do the right thing having tried all the other alternatives first. Yeah. But that takes some patience and some faith, <laughs> which is not always uh, present. And that's why people tend to overreact. I'm not despairing about America, but you still, you, you know, you still require some understanding, but you are indispensable. So we have to understand you. You don't have to understand us too much. I hear you on that. You know, for 15 years, I ran Asian studies at Georgetown and at CSIS. I'm now in Australia running an American studies program. And I tell people it was easier back in Washington trying to explain Kim Jong-un than being out in Asia trying to explain American politics. Kim Jong-un is a straightforward guy. You know, he says what he wants. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jane Coaston of the New York Times has a great line. She said, look, America's a weird country. This is a place that celebrated Andrew Jackson's election by opening the White House, letting everyone get drunk and eating a giant <laughs> wheel of cheese. Americans are weird. Let's do a quick round robin of the region. You're focused on the balance of power. The U.S. and China are critical. But as the relative power shifts, Japan, India, Australia, 
EU, all matter more. Who do you rate among the other powers in the region? You're pretty bullish on Japan, I gather. I would rate Japan first. Japan has an indispensable role. Mm-hmm. First, as the anchor of the U.S. presence in the region through the U.S.-Japan uh, Treaty Alliance. Secondly, I think Japan, I mean, U.S. is still a global power, and therefore, from time to time, there will be distractions to the U.S., the pivot notwithstanding, and the importance of Asia notwithstanding. So the Japanese kind of even out the American security presence because it is your proxy in, in this region. And thirdly, the, the Japanese, you know, there will be times when, especially in Southeast Asia, where for one reason or the other, usually for reasons of domestic politics, Southeast Asian countries cannot or find it too, too difficult or too sensitive to work directly with America. And that, but they, can, they find no difficulty in working with Japan. That was the case in, say, Duterte's Philippines. Duterte had an anti-American streak. There's no doubt about that because there is an anti-American streak in Filipino nationalism. But Duterte enhanced the security relationship between the Philippines and Japan. So that's the three fundamental. The second most important partner, I think, is Australia. And I think Japan and Australia have lots in common. And recent developments, you've seen the, the meetings, the spate of meetings between Japan and Australia, and I think that's all to the good. India is always going to be a factor by virtue of its size, its contiguity, right? But India is a huge, a continental country that is extremely complicated. So most of its strategic energy is going to be always inwardly directed rather than outwardly directed. And that's just a fact. But India plays an important role and it will, at its own pace, increase its footprint in the broader region. Um, although its strategic energy is always going to be primarily internally directed, secondarily directed westwards towards Pakistan and the Gulf and Afghanistan, and only thirdly, eastwards. The look east policy is actually a glance east policy, but it is an important policy nonetheless, and it's an important actor. The EU, well, you know, the EU is taking a, a slightly, some EU countries are taking a slightly more interest in the Indo-Pacific and interest in the hard power aspects of the Indo-Pacific, which are the key aspects of, you know, the main issues in the Pacific, is never going to play a major role. Probably the most important role that the EU can play is to, you know, look to its own defense so as to free up American resources. But I think it does play a, this new interest in the Indo-Pacific is uh, diplomatically and politically important because it shows that the issues that are of concern in this region are global issues. They're not just Asian issues or not just US-China issues, but of issues of global concern. So I think everybody has a role. And I think the most important thing to remember, you know, when we talk about Japan, we talk about India, we talk about Australia, shouldn't forget Korea, although it is uh, underperforming to my mind, and big countries in the region like Indonesia, this is a naturally multipolar region. Japan is the closest U.S. ally in this region. Australia is a close U.S. ally, but their interests are not identical with U.S. interests. They're not incompatible, but they're not identical. So there is a natural multipolarity in this region. And in multipolarity, there is maneuver space for small countries like Singapore and the other ASEAN countries. There are two scenarios which are disasters for countries like Singapore. 
you know, you all know this cliche, you know, when elephants fight, the, um, the grass is trampled, right? But the other half of it is equally true. When elephants make love, the grass is trampled too. <laughs> so the two uh, nightmare scenarios is, you know, war, where there's no manure space, or, you know, G2. Once upon a time, we worried about G2. There's no... Um, so a little bit of competition between the US and China is not a bad thing, provided it doesn't go too far. Much of our history, as you know from my, my book, My More Than Providence, was about yeah. successful management of multipolarity. And yeah. I think American strategic thinkers are coming back to that realization that this is yeah. a multipolar region and not framing yeah. everything through bipolar challenges and cooperation with China. So we're getting there. We're getting there. We're doing all the wrong things first, but we'll get to the right thing, I promise you. All right, that's what you normally do, but you know, I have some faith. You'll get there eventually. Pilar Hari, we'll, we'll let you get on with your day in a minute, but I wonder if you could just humor just a few more questions yeah. here. One for me, and then I'll turn it over to Mike for benediction and any final question, is on this quite complicated, increasingly so, Sino-Russian relationship. Um, obviously, you served in Moscow, and you've been a keen and close observer of Chinese foreign policy. So I wondered if you could help make some sense of this. Obviously, the February 4th joint statement between the two really shook a lot of the sort of China-watching establishment here and seemed to augur a new era of um, illiberal, um, sort of illiberal strategic competition with a, a growing Sino-Russian relationship. The war, of course, uh, the invasion of Ukraine has complicated that. But China satisfies neither those who think that the relationship between Moscow and Beijing is a, a nothing burger, a pure marriage of okay. convenience. But on the other hand, it doesn't satisfy those who would like to paint it as the next axis of evil. You know, There are tensions in that relationship. And I find it difficult as a relatively close observer to pin it down day to day. So I wondered, how do you assess the state of the relationship today, but more importantly, where do you think it goes from here in light of you know, Russia's catastrophic invasion of Ukraine, but also that relationship remains important for Xi Jinping, even if he's got some buyer's remorse? Well, look, when I read that 4 February statement, I thought this is yet another huge mistake by Xi Jinping. <laughs> right? I know Lavrov. He was my counterpart when I was in the UN. And I know Wang Yi, he was the uh, China SOM leader before he became foreign minister for ASEAN, right? And whatever you may think of their policies, the policies they serve, and I don't think very much of it, I think they are both very good professional diplomats in a technical sense. And I can't believe either of them thought that this was this such language of, you know, no forbidden areas in this partnership is a good idea. It's their two geniuses that they serve that probably cooked this up themselves. Right? No professional diplomat in any country can think, you know, it's, it's nonsense language. You know, the closest partnership you can think of is your marriage, you know, and if you think there are no forbidden areas, in it, <laughs> you're not going to be married very long, okay? <laughs> Believe me, all right? all right? But, you know, they are stuck with each other because the hard fact is neither has any other strategic partner anywhere in the world of that weight than each other. Now, that is not a good situation for each other. They're not very happy with it, but they're stuck with each other. It's quite clear now that there are forbidden areas. There are limits to this partnership. I don't think either Mr. Xi Jinping or Mr. Putin is extremely happy with, it, with each other, but you know they're stuck with each other. So I don't think they're going to break. And it's another example of um, the less than stellar performance of Chinese foreign policy under Xi Jinping. 
So it is much more than a marriage of convenience. It is less than a natural partnership because nobody has any other partner of that weight that shares their discomfort with the West to the extent that they both have discomfort with the West. What is going to happen over the very long run, I have no idea. Right? And I don't think either of these two uh, gentlemen have any idea either. But for now, you know, it's a fairly stable relationship because there is no other choice. So, Bill Harkaskan, thank you for your strategic thank insights, you. for your sound marriage advice, <laughs> an extra bonus this time. And you, when you were in government and I was in government, it was always fun, I have to say. Government yeah. is always fun, but it was always fun working with you because you had so much wit and so many insights. You now describe yourself often as a mere pensioner, but you're not. You're shaping the public debate. We're really but I am a pensioner. I, I receive pensions. Technically, I suppose you are, but you're still shaping the public debate in big, big ways and really glad that you can join me and Jude to do that for this program. Oh, pleasure. Pleasure to see both of you, uh, if only on screen. Thanks. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at CSIS.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.